Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 56 of Shut Up and Wrestle with a very special and very famous guest, Marcus Alexander Buff Bagwell, who will be here in just a bit. Buff Bagwell to discuss his years with WCW, and yes, to discuss how it all ended and the whole debacle with WWE. He shies away from no topic. It was a great conversation. I'm going to share it with you in a bit. There's a few things that I want to get to first. It has been a tough week for wrestling fans, especially fans of old school wrestling. We lost a few very important, cherished, and valued people that I want to make mention of. First and foremost, I want to acknowledge the passing of the great and legendary Jerry Jarrett, one of the most important, most innovative booking minds, promotional minds, wrestling minds that the industry has ever seen. Of course, the man behind the classic Memphis wrestling territory that we all remember and know and love from the 70s, 80s, and 90s as well as the co-founder of TNA Impact Wrestling and a lot of other things. This was somebody who was a valued partner of Vince McMahon and the WWF, and in fact, at one point was lined up to potentially take over the operation of the company in the 90s, should Vince McMahon go to prison, which he did not. Uh, Jerry Jarrett, a hugely important figure in the history of wrestling, the last, really, of the territorial promoters, especially the, the major territorial promoters. There are a few still out there. Uh, He was really, I would say, the last of the hugely important ones of his era. And in fact, next week's show, I'm going to be talking with the Memphis wrestling historian Mark James, who was also the co-writer with Jerry of Jerry Jarrett's autobiography. And he's he had a lot to say about Jerry, a lot of cherished memories. And I will be sharing those with you for next week's show, so stay tuned for that. I also want to make mention of some of the other losses that may have been uh, not as high profile and maybe some of you had not heard about, but they both involved really the world of wrestling magazines and wrestling publications. Of course, Mr. Lou Sahadi, the legendary sports writer known far beyond the world of wrestling, the man behind Wrestling World magazine in the 60s and 70s and many other wrestling publications who helped to make national stars out of people like Bruno San Martino and The Sheik, thanks to putting them on the covers of his many magazines in those years. And I was privileged to work with Lou's son, Dave Sahadi, during my years at WWE. I had the extended privilege of talking to Lou while I was writing the book on the original Sheik. Of course, The Sheik and Lou Sahadi, very close friends, 
They both shared a Lebanese heritage, a friendship that lasted many years, and his input in the book was invaluable. He passed away at the age of 92 last week. And I also want to mention another Detroit area wrestling magazine and publication luminary, Mr. Brian Bucantis, who was one of the top photographers really of wrestling in the 70s and 80s, who was the man behind Stranglehold magazine for Dick the Bruiser's WWA, as well as the um, the Body Press magazine for the Sheik's Big Time Wrestling for a Time, an accomplished wrestling photographer. I worked with him as well on the the biography of the Sheik, Blood and Fire, and he provided a lot of the photography for that book. He also was behind the, the relaunch of Wrestling Review magazine that a lot of you may remember from some years back because he did own the assets of Pro Wrestling Enterprises, which included Wrestling Review, the Ring Wrestling, and of course the Wrestling News. And it was Brian who sold those assets to Arcadian Vanguard uh, a few years ago, which led to the relaunch and recreation of the wrestling news as we now know it as a daily uh, wrestling newscast. So uh, Brian Bucantis, uh, a very important figure in the history of pro wrestling media. So I wanted to acknowledge his passing as well. And I'm sorry to have to share the news of so many losses in such a short period of time. Our thoughts, our prayers are with the family and friends of Jerry Jarrett, of Lou Sahadi, and of Brian Bucantis at this time. Also want to take a moment to mention that the May issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the newest edition with the former Sasha Banks, a.k.a. Mercedes Monet, on the cover, is now available in digital format, and it will be available in print format in about another week or so. And I, I mention it because I have contributed a couple of columns in that issue. I have my column called The Lockup which is all about Roman Reigns and his historic reign as WWE Universal Champion, which may be coming to an end very soon at WrestleMania. But more to the interest of listeners of this show, of this podcast, is my column The Way It Was, my vintage retro column, which in this new May issue covers the memorable and notorious and infamous heel turn of Larry Zbysko in 1980, turning on his mentor and friend, Bruno San Martino in the WWF recently made available in the new episodes of WWF Championship Wrestling available on Peacock. But I wrote a whole column about it, and you can find both of those columns in the new May issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, available in digital form and soon to be in print form at pwi-online.com. So go there to check it out. But right now, I'd like to take you to this very special interview, and I want to thank Pamela Morrison who was a recent guest here on the show, Pamela Morrison, the daughter of J.J. Dillon, she helped to make this connection with Buff Bagwell and get him interested in coming on Shut Up and Wrestle. I had not spoken to Buff in maybe 20 years, so this was very cool, and this was a lot of fun, and I was surprised and impressed with how candid and honest and open he was, and I think you will be too. So I'm going to take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, it gives me great pleasure to welcome somebody who really needs no introduction, but I'm going to do an introduction anyway. He was one of the most recognizable wrestlers in WCW for an entire decade. I would even go so far as to say 
one of the stars who defined WCW in the 1990s, wrestling there from 1991 right up to the very end in 2001. Five-time WCW World Tag Team Champion, a member of tag teams like Stars and Stripes and the American Males, but probably best remembered for his time in the New World Order. He first rose to fame as Marcus Alexander Bagwell, but of course these days he's probably even better known from his NWO moniker, Buff Bagwell. Welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, Buff Bagwell. Hey, what's going on, brother? Nothing. I'm I'm just happy to have you here. Happy to make a connection. This is great, and I I have to thank Pam Morrison for making this connection. She's the best. Yeah, she's a great girl, and uh, I'm glad she got us together on this. And uh, it's just a, you know, I'm just letting everybody know that I'm 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 here still. You know, I'm still you know, I'm still Marcus Buff Bagwell, and I still love this business, and still want to be part of 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 doing everything there is to do about wrestling i think that's great and i mean as you probably know i mean there's so many people that are rooting for you that 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 want to see more of you and you know are just big fans of yours goes without saying really right and that's and that's great and that's what i want to do it's just you know i just you know we've all had uh you know journeys and and you know demons and good things and bad things happen in all of our lives but you know, it's just when you're in the mainstream of, of life and you're an open book like I like I am, I, I just have nothing to hide. I'm a very honest, open um, person and always have been with my fans, with myself and just just with just with life. It was just, you know, it was just easier to be a good person. It was so much easier just to tell the truth. And out of that, the the thing that gets stuck on you is you're a really great guy. That's a great tag to put on yourself after doing something that seems really just really just normal, which is telling the truth and being a good guy. And, you know, and I did that because of the way I was raised and the way that I just felt like wrestling fans were so into the sport. I was not going to dare. I've never, I mean, if you ever hear that I turned down an autograph to anybody, I would bet my life. There is a unbelievably great story or it's a lie because I just don't do that. I just don't do it. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I I think in my experience, it's been true. And I have to tell you that, um, this ties into something that I've I've always wanted to bring up to you because, you know, um, there's no way you would remember this, but we met one time before many years ago. So I've been, and it has to do with an autograph signing. So I've been writing about wrestling and covering wrestling for almost 30 years now. And I started in college and I went to, uh, I, I was writing about wrestling for the college paper at Brooklyn College, which is where I, where I went. And mm-hmm. at, at the time, you and Del Wilkes, the Patriot, you guys were stars and stripes, and you made an appearance. And I remember this, I remember being really thrown off by this because WCW really didn't come to the New York area that much back then. This would be about 94. And you guys made this autograph signing appearance at a video store, which was right down the street from Brooklyn College, where I went to school. And I went down there and I 
I interviewed you guys for the for the college paper, and I think you guys you guys were probably among the first wrestlers that I ever interviewed. And now I've interviewed you know probably like thousands, but I mean that was one of the first experiences that I had. And you you were nothing but helpful, professional, super friendly. You know there weren't a ton of people there because it was just a very kind of random appearance. But you were absolutely fantastic to talk to and work with on that day. I vaguely remember that only because it's, you know, so crazy that we would be in the WWF's territory. Right. It's very, very, very rare that, you know, that we were up there. And let me ask you a question. Where's that, where's that town that starts with a P that ends with ski, like Podesky or Podesky? Oh man. Uh, Oh, you mean uh, Poughkeepsie? Poughkeepsie. Where is that at from you? So that is, well, uh, I'm in Connecticut these days, but at that time I was in Brooklyn in New York City. Poughkeepsie is, it's not really upstate New York, but it's on the way to upstate New York. Because we we wrestled in Poughkeepsie. Maybe that was it. Because I remember saying to you even then, I just said, and I was maybe 19, 20 years old. I said, what are you guys doing here? Like, this is so weird to see you guys here in the middle of Brooklyn. And I was just like, I'm going to take advantage of this to get a great interview for the wrestling column that I had for my college paper. (laughs) What did I say? You know, I honestly, I don't totally remember your answer, but I think you almost seemed like you didn't even really understand why they sent you there either. (laughs) Even even talking it back to you, like I said, you know, we didn't go up there. We didn't wrestle up there. We wasn't. That was the WWF's territory. We didn't go up there. We weren't even we weren't even on the map yet, man, you know. So maybe that's what that's why you were there. Maybe you guys were doing a, a show in Poughkeepsie, I guess. I mean, that would be the only reason I could think. Maybe. And I remember we also wrestled um, Jim Duggan's father was uh, like the chief of police, is my understanding, in White Plains, New York. Okay. And I remember we wrestled in White Plains, New York, on that same loop of Poughkeepsie and White Plains. I remember that. Oh, that could be it. Yes. And I had, of course, I had my my girlfriend with me at the time who was a big fan of yours, so she insisted on on coming along. I don't know how much of a wrestling fan she was, but she was a Bagwell fan. <laughs> well, that's okay. <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. And, you know, I, and I have to ask, too, because I mentioned at the beginning how, you know, at that time you were about three years into your WCW run. And, I mean, what an incredible run. I mean, ha- there aren't a lot of people that could – I mean, Sting, obviously, you know, has you beat in the amount of years. But, I mean, the amount of time that you were there is really impressive. And you started, right? I mean, you really didn't have much experience. You were a rookie, really, when when you they first brought you in. I mean, dude, this this the, the timeline, when you get older, the timelines really are so much shorter than you think. But, first of all, Sting and I are the only two guys to do the whole journey at WCW. The only two guys. Uh, it was Sting and I from 90. Sting was just a little bit before me on the actual world championship wrestling run, but right. nobody else was with him. It was just, lit- I mean, literally, my understanding and my knowledge is Sting and I were the only two that did the whole run of WCW. 
and uh, everybody else went back and forth and all that. And I was a rookie. And the timeline, bro, you got to realize 92 was 90, late 91 or 92 was, was my debut on WCW. That means I was 21, bro. <laughs> I mean, 21 years old. So I'm barely old enough to buy beer and I'm, and I'm on national TV and I'm getting saved in the ring by Sting. Yeah. I mean, it, so it, it was just really crazy to be a rookie and be thrown in that, that, that world and be able to pull it off. You know, I mean, I had the look, I really was a very, I was really in shape for my age and that helped me tremendously to be in shape. But then I also could, also could I fit in a role I fit the role of the guy that could put people over and make him look good because I looked good and I, and I could do everything they said they asked me to do. I could do it. Um, I didn't know the names of the moves. I was just very athletic and I was very charismatic. And you put those two together and it creates a pro wrestler. And really, like you said, I mean, you, you were there, Year after year, like Sting was, never left, never left and came back, none of that kind of thing. And I think really, I I mean, people who listen to this are probably, they may correct me, I don't know, but I can't think of anybody except you and Sting that were there, say, specifically in right up to the very end of WCW that had been there from the early 90s. I mean, Sting was there, Sting started there in 87, 88, but I mean, to go from 91 to 2001... I can't think of anybody besides you and Sting. I mean, I get maybe Arn Anderson. No, well, yeah, Arn Anderson, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, and, and you know, like, and like, like again, Larry, Larry Zabisco was there. Uh, I think the whole ride, but right, but, but not, not as, as a wrestler, a worker, right? Not as a wrestler, right. though. Exactly. Like you know, your Bobby Eaton's were there, but not the whole ride. Um, so there, there was a few guys, but man, it, it's it's it was a very small group that did the whole the whole ten years. And I, I imagine it also, I don't know how much this affected you on the day-to-day, but I mean, you also went through different regimes at WCW. I mean, from, you know, I, I guess you started under Jim Hurd, but then Kay Allen Fry, and then the Bill Watts period, <laughs> and then, of course, Bischoff uh, for years. I mean, what was that like? Was it like a constantly having to get used to different management like that? Well, first of all, think about, you know, uh, literally I survived the count I had was five bosses. So I survived <laughs> five bosses. When I first came in, like my boss was dusty Rhodes, And so dusty was running the show. And then I remember for a while it was flair. And then for a while it was Kevin Sullivan. And then it was like, you know, but behind the mainstream would be like Kip Fry. And, and then there was a couple other, like, uh, you know, that suits, you know, suit, we call them suits, right. a couple of suits that ran the show, but it was always a wrestler that an ex wrestler that ran the show show. And it was dusty. And then it was Flair, Then it was Sullivan. And then it was cowboy Bill Watts. And then with cowboy Bill Watts, I really thought that my, my luck had ran out because <laughs> Because he he was dead against everything Marcus Bagwell did. He was dead against bodies. Mm-hmm. He was dead against pretty boys. He was dead against anything I had to offer. And he was all about, like, his perfect wrestler would have been Dr. Death Steve Williams. Right. 
you know, that was his idea of a pro wrestler. And that is most people's idea. But the time I came along, it was time for some young guys. It was time for some bodies. It was time for some good looking guys to do this profession. And there was nothing wrong with it being like that. It just, he wasn't about it. The only reason I survived Cowboy Bill Watts is because of Eric Watts. Me and Eric Watts were best friends at the at WCW, and or I never would have survived Bill. Never. He uh, he was really really tough on me, and he was. I mean, he was very he was very he was uh, he was uh, true and honest, and he wasn't like you know a bad guy. He just did not. He just didn't dig me, and so. I really thought I was going to make that one, but I survived him. And, you know, then when Eric came along, Eric wasn't a real big, you know, Marcus Bagwell fan either. But then me and Eric became real tight. We became really good friends. And, you know, like everybody else, I was some young punk kid until they got to meet me. Then they were like, man, Bagwell's a, Bagwell's a good guy. And then it was like, you know, Bagwell's been around, bro. I mean, I could ride Harleys. I, I was athletic. I was, I've been in fights. I've, you know, I've knocked people out. I mean, I, 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 I've been there and done that for a 21 year old kid. And so it really, once the wrestlers at WCW learned who I was, they loved me because I was such a nice guy. And so they really did like love that about me. And I was honest and I was truthful and I could make them look good in the ring because when they beat me, they were beating a guy that looked athletic, you know? Yeah, it, it it made it more convincing because whether you whether you won or lost, like you said, because you looked the part, you had the body. And I mean, honestly, I have to say, too, it was interesting to me because you had the look that was more even more, I would say, of a WWF look in that era. You, you know what um, I mean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, and they only came knocking at my door one time and it was around the NWO time, you know, but I had such a home. At WCW, I didn't really care. I mean, I was fine. And, you know, all I heard about up there was they, they wasn't on guaranteed contracts. They were, they, they got, um, they got paid like as, um, like as money came in, that's how their checks got to them. So we were on salary at WCW, bro. So if you made, you know, 200 grand a year, they times that, I mean, they multiply that with, you know, 26 pay periods because you got paid every two weeks and you get, so they divide 200 grand into 26 and that was your paycheck every two weeks. So I was under contract with a, with guaranteed money for 11 years. I mean, that's huge, bro. Huge. Absolutely. And I can understand why there were guys that didn't want to leave. I mean, why, why would you, especially if you didn't think you were going to get a better deal? I mean, why go? It does seem like a great, place to be from the wrestler's point of view. Also, I think, correctly if I'm wrong, even though WCW was traveling, I don't think they were going to as many far-flung places as WWF was, right? I mean, it was it wasn't as much travel involved as as it would be at the WWF. Not near as much. I mean, for a big, long stint, man, all we did was Saturday Night TV tapings, bro. And we did that in downtown Atlanta at Center Stage. So I got in my car and I went down to do TV tapings. I drove back home. We were off for four days. You know, awesome. so I drove out. I took a 45-minute drive to work and then 
was a star on TV and then drove back to my house 45 minutes away. So living in Atlanta, being from Atlanta and living here and working for WCW was just literally like just a complete godsend, you know? Yeah. And those center stage crowds were great, man. I mean, they would help get guys over the way they would get behind people. I mean, everybody talks about the, the Ron Simmons title change and I mean, how the crowd reaction made him, but I mean, those that crowd could really make you into a star. Absolutely. And they did. I mean, they that crowd, man, they saw Marcus Alexander Bagwell for a long time, bro. And guys would come down from the WWF and they they would they would be at WCW and they would leave and they would come back and they'd be like, you're still here. And when I learned that was a special thing, I'd be like, man, shh, be quiet, bro. You know? Don't don't make it clear to them I'm still here. Just just be quiet, you know. But it was just so rare in this business not to piss somebody off, not to get them mad at you, to survive in the world of pro wrestling, to survive five bosses as a rookie and come out of it a five-time world tag team champion with five different guys. Nobody has ever ever done that before they may have five different titles but they ain't got five with five different people did you have a favorite team you know i get asked that a lot <laughs> and, and, and it's it's a it's really a tough one I, I i really don't the answer is no um the america i mean me and scorpio was an absolute blast but so was me and patriot and then so was me and rig i mean I think, I mean, now that I say it out loud like that, I mean, I mean, if I had to pick one, I, I would say American males because of the time we were doing it. You know, that was when wrestling, that's when WCW was starting to get a little more popular and we were becoming bigger names and the American male thing was a good gimmick and we could be our, we could be who we were and we were the American males and, and it was, it was just a cool time to be kind of cool. And then that's what we went right into the NWO with. I mean, I turned on rigs to join the NWO. And I think with the American males, it was the best overall presentation. Like you guys were, were paired up well, you know what I mean? They always talk about how the best tag teams are teams that really come across like, um, you know, a team, not just two guys that they threw together. And I'm not saying the other teams were like that, but I'm saying with American males, it really seemed like there was a lot of thought into which two guys would be the best together for this American males thing. Yeah, the really, it really was. And 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 me and Scotty really were were we were excellent friends too. We really we roomed together, we stayed together, we we were friends, we hung out in Atlanta together. So, you know, even us going out in Atlanta. And it was cool because we'd show out and we'd be all, you know, tricked out in some kind of cool outfits. And we'd just go out to the club and it was, you know, there was the American males, you know, hanging out at the bar, you know. It was it was really a cool ride. But, man, at the same time, you know, we had me and Norton as vicious and delicious. I mean, that was, that was to me, that was a real great one, too, because that was NWO tag team. Me, me and Norton would have been the world tag team champions as well, except I broke my neck. Oh, and that right. that yes. that ten, I broke my neck about our second or third match ever. 
So when they put me and Norton together, I wrestled, we wrestled Luger and Steiner that night, Rick Steiner and Lex Luger. And it was me and Norton in Columbia, South Carolina on a Thursday night thunder, April of 1998. And you just don't forget the night you got paralyzed. You know what I'm saying? And um, so that was one of our very first big matches. And we were going over in that match. And so to go over Luger and Steiner, we were going to be the next world tag team champions, of course. And we never became champions because I broke my neck and it was 10 months before I was back. And by then, you know, Norton had already been doing other things. And then, you know, I came back and they put me right with Scott Steiner, you know. Now, since you were, you guys were salary, and this is a money question, I don't mean to be nosy, but I'm curious about things like this. Since you were getting paid weekly like that or biweekly, when you're on the shelf that long, are you still getting your paycheck like normal? That's a great question. And what happened to me was um, during the time of contracts and money, I, I know for a fact that everybody's was like kind of like what I'm getting ready to explain. Everybody's was you dealt with the money, but then they put, um, I can't remember what they call them. They call them, um, there were places in the contract uh, that you could do, like if you got hurt, your your money went from your contract money to like a certain amount of time and the money got cut in half to a certain amount of time, your money got cut in a quarter to a certain amount of time, you were fired. And they were called hmm. levels. There's another word besides levels, but there was levels. And so in other words, if somebody got hurt and you're on a three-year deal in six months, if you wasn't working, you got fired, you know? So there was, uh, and you took those clauses or, or levels, I can't know what the dang word is, but you took those clauses out of your contracts and the bigger you were and the more popular you were, you could do those kind of things. Well, when I did my contract, I had a hand shook deal with uh, Eric Bischoff and I, I had to go to Japan and everybody kind of bumped up on their money and I didn't. And I was mad about it. I was real upset. And then here I am going to Japan. So I'm going to Japan with not making the money I want to be making, not no, not making the money I know I should be making. And I'm upset about it. And he knows I'm upset and everybody knows I'm upset about it. So the best thing that could happen to me was that, though, because I went to Japan and I got over in Japan. And me and Norton got really over. They, end up, they got an NWO Japan over there. It was Great Muda and um, the uh, Mafia Kick guy, Chono. Chono, yeah. And, uh, and they had their own NWO over there. So we went over there and, like, showed them all the cool stuff to do with NWO and painting people and just, you know, rack, racking the place and wrecking everything. And, and we just showed them all that. So they really – the NWO was really over over there as well. So I think they thought I was going to fall on my face over there. And I, I came out of it like, I mean, smelling like a million bucks, man. I was just, it really worked. So when I got back, I knew it was a good thing. I didn't sign my contract till I got back. So when I got back, I broke my neck and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, I was like, well, you got I me. Mean, there, and my contract was up, and I got a hand shook deal on my money, a three year deal, hand shook before I went to Japan, and then I break my neck when I get back. So Eric Bishop, I'm in the hospital thinking, what you know, this could be it could be over. I mean, why would they hire me? Why would they give me this deal now? You know. So Eric Bishop calls me up, and he's like, "Hey man, how you doing?" I go, "Well, I said I'm okay," but you know, he goes, "Well." 
He goes, you're probably not worried about it, but I, I want you to know our, our deal is still on the table. And I said, well, for starters, I'm extremely worried about it. And, you know, he goes, well, all this, that's when couriers ran. He goes, well, I'll just have it curry. I'll curry it to your hospital. And I said, please do. So he curried it to the hospital, had it curried to me. And when I got the contract, I, um, uh, when I got the contract, I didn't, I, instead of doing what I normally would do and go through it and, and like get all the bells and whistles checked out and, and the things I was able to do as being buff bag, well, like getting those, that sick, those, um, I can't, I can't think of the word of those things, but it's those little levels I was talking about. All right, those like, like steps. Kind of. Like the steps in it, I could have got all of those taken out because I was Buff Bagwell, but I didn't do that kind of stuff. So I signed a regular contract because the money was there and it was a three-year deal and I'm laying there with a broke neck. So I want to make sure I'm getting paid for three years because I don't have any idea what's going to come out of this. So, but, uh, but unfortunately, I was getting ready to make the biggest mistake of my life. And I didn't know it. And so I signed the contract thinking I'm doing the, the best logical thing I can do. And, and it was, it was a great move and it was fantastic and all that. But then when, you know, I start turned to the back of the contract, I sign it, I get it back to my mom and I go get that back to Eric Bischoff now. So my mom gets it right back, courier right back to him. And now boom, I'm not, now no pressure. I've got a three-year deal making, I think, 1.8 in three years. It was, you know, a three-year deal. It went up each year, but the whole total amount of the contract was 1.8. So, you know, six, seven hundred thousand a year guaranteed. And and it was just a great deal for me. I'm 20, 26 years old, making 1.8 million in the next three years. So I'm thrilled. Everybody's happy. Next surgery happens, and then they tell me I ain't gonna make it back. And I'm like, what? But, you know, Eric even told me the day I signed the contract, he goes, look, man, you're Buff Bagwell. You know, he goes, we can, we can, you know, we can, you know, um, you can be a manager, you can be an announcer, you know, we can use you. So you're still a talent for us. So, you know, that made me feel really good. And I knew that we had a three-year deal. So at least for three years, I had a job. But, um, but I, but the, the doctors were thinking I wasn't going to make it back. So, but I did finally make it back. And, you know, and then, the, but then it being the biggest mistake of my life, really, or at least in my, at WCW was when Vince McMahon bought our company, ironically, that three-year deal was in a, a couple of months at the most from being when he bought our company, from being up. So, Eric, I mean, so Vince, before he bought our company, though, he came to me, you know, you know, exploring me coming to WWF. And I flew up there, met him and all that and the, behind WCW's back. They did not know it. I didn't do anything illegal. I just went up there to visit with Vince McMahon. Mm -hmm. And he said that. Um, so when I when he saw my contract, he called me back, and goes, man, this contract is just ironclad, bro. He goes why did you sign this? I go, and I explained the story. I said, man, I said, Vince, I was crippled. I, I was in the hospital getting neck surgery and I needed some, I need a guarantee of money. I said, just so happens three years later, you know, within a two month window, you're, you're coming, you're courting me, you know, I mean, it's just a bad thing. So long story short, 
that didn't happen. I could, he couldn't even give me an idea of what he wanted me. He goes, well, you'll be here one day, but you can't be here until this contract's over. Mm. So I said, yes, sir. Nice to meet you. Bye. Well, fast forward two months later, he's, uh, he's bought our company <laughs> and now my contract is up and I ain't got, you know, no leverage because my contract's up and WCW has been bought by Vince McMahon. So I go from a guy that he wanted to come to his company to what was your name again, bro? I mean, he literally did not even, he acted like he didn't even know who I was. And I was like, I said, I'm the guy you flew up. Don't you remember, bro? So I went from making, you know, right at a million dollars a year to 175000 a year. Mm-hmm. Now, $175,000 is a lot of money, but it ain't when you're making eight hundred fifty. Right. No, I mean, obviously, the people need to understand that. I mean, yeah, for a, for a lot of people, that would be a lot of money. But but when you're talking about a standard of living and what you've been making, and then going to making what like a fifth yeah. of that, of maybe, yeah. I, I it mean, was it was it was a huge. I mean, keep in mind, there goes the house, there goes your cars, there goes your motorcycles, there goes all the toys, and then you're making good money, right. Right. But there goes everything, you know, so I had to sell everything and then and then settle back down with Vince and I go into Vince. I could have sat at home and he could have paid me another, you know, 60 or 70 grand of money I had coming in because he had he had a he, when he bought the company, he had to buy all those contracts. He had to buy everything. So guys just sat at home and watched the war happen. Well, guys like Booker T, Dallas and me we, our contracts were ironically up. So I called Brad Small, which is me and J- Dallas Page's agent. And I said, Dallas, I said, I said, I said, Brad, I said, I got a good idea. I go, we need to give Vince McMahon the remainder of the money he owes me and join and sign the first contract. And Brad Small, my agent goes, oh my God, that is the smartest thing I've ever heard. He was Mark. That's brilliant. So he calls Vince up and Vince is thrilled. You know, here's all the heat, all that stories, all the stuff that they're hearing or thinking. I come to them and give them 60 plus thousand dollars to, to come in at a 80% cut in pay. Cause Marcus Bagwell at 29 years old, bro, is going to be a millionaire for Vince. So me losing 60 grand to show I'm on the team and paying, getting paid 175 is I'm not even looking at that. I'm looking at two, three, two, three years down the road, I'm going to be the rock. Hmm. And so, and, and, but what happened was is two or three weeks later, I got fired. I'm like, Whoa, I am the only wrestler in the history of time, bro. (laughs) In the history of pro wrestling to be main event one week and fired the next. Yeah. And you know what? I was, I was working for WWE at that time. I was in the, in the publications department. I worked in the tower in Stanford in that whole era with the WCW invasion and everything. And actually that, that led to the only other time that I got to interview you, which was they, they brought in, like you said, that first wave of WCW signees, the people that were actually going to come in. So it was like, it was you. I, I remember Mike Awesome being there. I remember, I think Jim Jack and O'Hare were there. Tori Wilson was there. 
And they had it all was you- 12. It was 12 guys. Right. And they had all of you guys at their, you know, they didn't have the, the, the performance center back then. So they had that that uh, warehouse in Stamford where they had the ring where everybody worked out. We called it tracks. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, it was right by the train tracks. And they had all you guys there. And I remember they said to us, because we were, you know, just the writers for the magazine. They said, hey, if you want to get a bunch of interviews with the WCW guys, they're all working out down the street at tracks. And so I hopped in my car. I went down there and I sat down, I think, with all you guys and and just kind of like got your first interviews with with wwe or wwf were done at that at that big workout and then like you said i couldn't believe it because the next thing i knew you were gone it's like we, we, we talked and then like two weeks later you were just gone it was just the craziest thing in the world bro i mean everybody there i mean they had billy kidman it was um uh hugh morris um mm-hmm. chavo guerrero was there um it was uh sean stasiak um yeah. stacy keebler uh, i think Keebler, um, uh, uh, Shane Helms, um, because he's the one that hit me in the back of the head down at that school. Right. I heard about that, and I think that happened the day that I was there, but I didn't see it. So either it probably happened after I left. I can't imagine it was before. Well, if I wasn't bleeding profusely (laughs) out of my head, it would happen later. (laughs) Yeah, what what was the story of that? I'm sorry, you probably told it a million times. Oh, I, and I but I love it. I love the story because it's the truth. And Shane, you know, Shane knows that we, me and Shane are friends. We're we're, we're okay with it because it's just life, you know. But it, it 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 did play a part in losing me millions of dollars, bro. Because um, I I don't know the reason why they fired me, and they didn't give me a reason. And I, to this day, I have no idea why or when or what. But they did, and. And all I could think of, it was just the trouble I'd caused by slapping Shane or whatever. But we'd worked out that day and we were working out and we had the best workout we'd had yet. We had like four guys in each corner and we would just go in and tag. We'd just tag and and just had a match going at all times, calling the spots out loud. And, you know, just it wasn't about trying to hide the cover in the spots. It was just calling out loud, but just running the ropes and running plays and running spots and, you know, tackle, drop down, leapfrog, you know headlock takeover backdrop get it again you know pile driver arm drags hip tosses monkey flips i mean name it name it name it we were doing it and having a great time and just tag 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 it was about an hour long 12 man 16 man tag that was just great it was a blast and we learned a lot at the end of that day we um um shane helms keep in mind he was nobody bro he was he was three count. He was, he was, he was on the bottom of my shoes. I mean, not, not, not being mean or ugly, just being truthful. He, he also, was, he hadn't been in WCW for very long at the time. I mean, you'd been there for many years. Yeah. I'd been there for a decade, bro. You know? And so, you know, so he, um, I mean, me and Shane got along, but he was not in my category of, of talent and everybody there. I mean, it's weird how it turned out, but at that time, everybody knew I had a job, except me. I, I, I didn't, but everybody acted like, oh, my God, you're you're in, you're good. And I'm like, bro, don't say that. You don't know. You know, so in the process of that, everybody there is under the inkling that Marcus Buff Bagwell has got a job. And so Shane, one day, the day we did that workout, he was hurt that day. 
And he threw a jab at me in front of all the boys after we got done. He said, like, he said something like, um, he, I don't know, he said something. I can't remember what it was. And it was like a little bit of a jab. And I said, I said, wow. I said, look at the man that was, was lazy all day today and set out all day. And I didn't know it, but he hurt his ribs and he had a t-shirt on and he hurt his ribs and underneath his ribs, WWF, they had water bottles that were frozen and coolers and they would put that ice on you like an ice pack and they'd wrap, wrap an ace bandage around it. And that's how they ice people's injuries. Well, underneath his shirt that I didn't know was an ice bottle ace bandaged around his ribs, around his whole body. Right. So we're having this discussion in the ring. And I said, um, he goes, he said something about my workability or something. And I said, you know what, Shane? I said, you know what I can't wait for, bro? And he goes, what's that? I go, I can't wait for your very first wrestling interview at WWF. And everybody's kind of looking weird. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Shane Helms has a lisp. Yes. And I said, Hey, my name is Fugafane Helms, and I'm with the WWF, and I can't wait. And, man, the boys just were like, oh, my God. <laughs> and so that guy kind of calmed down, and Shane Helms goes, at least I ain't going bald. And I <laughs> said, look, I said, look, bro, I said, um, you know, we can, uh, and I threw something back at him, and he threw back at me, at least I ain't a drug addict. And I said, look, bro, I go, I'll tell you what, I go, we can just drop this and let it go. I said, or I can beat your fucking brains out. I said, either one you want. And he was, he was, I was on the, I was standing on the floor and my arms, my elbows were on like the apron. He was to my left with his elbow. He was sitting his butt on the ring in the ring and his elbows were on the bottom rope. And about middle ways down the ropes. And when he's, when he, so when I said that, he went, take your, he didn't get nothing out. And I went, whack, an open hand slapped him and it rolled him into the turnbuckle. And as soon as it rolled him into that turnbuckle, I was like, God dang, Bagwell, what have you done? You've done it again. You've gotten in trouble again. What have you done? And I'm going to walk off like going, man, you're such an idiot, man. And brother, Whack. He hits me with a full swing with an ice brick. And I get 20 staples in my head. When I wrestled, this is the kind of stuff you don't hear about. When I wrestled Booker T in the very first match of the WCW WWF invasion, we was main event on Monday Night Raw, and I had 20 staples in my head. That's the kind of stuff that nobody talks about. I don't think a lot of us knew. Like you said, I nobody mean, knew the fight that happened. I mean, I'd heard about it, but it was after we had all left and I, I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. I, it was the last thing that I would have expected was going to happen after I left that building was that there was going to be something like that. Absolutely. And it's the last thing anybody thought it was the weirdest thing that happened. And then, and then Shane Helms, of course, he's he's holding my head. Johnny Ace and and uh, um, who's the Irish guy? Uh, oh, um, Nick Finley, Fit uh, Finley. Yeah, Fit Finley and Johnny Ace come running over, and they're like, "What happened? What happened? What happened?" And I got twelve sets of eyes 
looking at me and they're all saying, please don't tell the truth, Buff, please. I mean, every eye is looking at me like that. And I look around and I go, I, I fell. And Johnny goes, what do you mean you fell? I said, man, I stepped out of the ring right here and I, I fell. And him and Fit Billy are trying to put it together. And he goes, you're buffed back. What do you mean you fell? I said, bro, I slipped on the thing. And these guys' eyes were all like, thank you. Because they didn't want heat for what had happened. And right. Shane Helms, knowing that I had a job and he didn't, the last thing he wants to get out is that he hit me with a brick in the back of the head. Right, so, of course, yeah. So he's holding a towel on my head. And this is probably a story he will lie about. And I would like to say he wouldn't because it's been so long. And who cares? But he's crying, holding the towel on my head. He's crying. He's like, I'm so sorry, man. I can't believe I got I said, bro, it, it, it is what it is. I hit you first. It's my fault. Just it's totally my fault. I said, but just let's just help me get wrapped up here. So the last thing I wanted to do is go to the WWF and say, Hey, y'all need to fix my head. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I flew home with a gash in my head, a gash, bro. And I put a towel on my head and Mark Jindrak is the witness to this whole story. So anytime you want to talk to Mark Jindrak, he knows everything I'm getting ready to tell you. He drives with me back to the Marriott. And whatever room I was staying in at the Marriott, whoever cleaned that room up, brother, they called the police because <laughs> it looked like it looked like 14 murders were in there. Your head, my head is bleeding, and I'm trying to pack my bags. Do you know how much your head is moving everywhere? That whole room, brother, is covered in blood. And there's just no way to get it stopped. And finally, me and Mark rig up some kind of towel on my head with a ball cap. And we get me at the airport. There wasn't, you know, TSA and all that hadn't happened. All the, you know, all the, you know, right. security hadn't happened at airports yet. Yeah, but still, pre, you couldn't pre, fly Pre-9-11. Yeah. Yeah, pre-9-11. And you could, but you still, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't, um, you couldn't fly with ble a bleeding head, especially in first class. So I get on the plane and we, we hide it, you know, to get on the plane with a hat and the towel and everything. And about halfway through the flight, a nurse comes by, I mean, a, a stewardess comes by and she's like, is your head bleeding? And I was like, no, no, no. And she goes, yes, it is. And you can't emergency land. So all I had to do is take off. I landed, went to my own doctor, did not tell WWF anything about it because the guys didn't want me to, didn't want to get in trouble. And I didn't want to get in trouble either. So I just went to the doctor. He went and fixed it. He, he had to cauterize my head and, you know, had to put 20, it's like 23 staples were in it. And then that next weekend I, I was, I, I was on the, I was on the road. We were in Seattle, Washington for WWF. And I wrestled Booker T at that house show. Me and Booker wrestled a thousand times. It was a great match. And then the next night we're live on Monday night raw. So I had to get a Sharpie and color my head where they had shaved it to, to, um, to put the staples in. And nobody knew, right? You hadn't told anybody when you went in. There. And at that show, I walked in 
And when I walked in, the first person I saw was Shane after crying and holding the towel on my head and all that. And he's with the Hardy Boys. And as they walk by me, I go, hey, Shane. And he don't speak to me. So I went, oh, boy, here we go. So I go straight to Johnny Laurinaitis, Johnny Ace. And I said, bro, here's what happened. And I tell him everything. He gets all 12 guys into a room because this is his ass at this stage. He's trying to get a job at WWF as well. So he's got to make sure these 12 guys do what they're supposed to do. So he gets us all together and he tells us all what we got to do and you guys got to make up and what are you guys arguing for? And so we all shake hands, we all make up. And then me and Booker are main event that night. So I'm thinking, okay, we're, we're good to go here. You know, me and Booker go out and have a decent match. Of course, at first, everybody said it was horrible. That match has not got one, one era in that match, but it was slow. It was methodical, whatever you want to call it. But there's no mistakes. There's no tripping. There's no flaws. All my punches look great. All the moves are perfect. It's just not the best match in the world, but it's not the worst either. And it sure as hell ain't a match that you fire Buff mm-hmm. Bagwell over. You may give him a warning. You may say that ain't how we do it. But you don't fire anybody over a bad match especially a five-time world tag team champion, bro. 11 years, five bosses, and one of the best careers ever from the age of 21 to 30, and I'm getting fired over a bad match, supposedly? Come on, bro. I mean, you don't tell me there. And keep in mind, another story nobody tells. I'm in Tacoma, Washington with Booker T., and we're main event in Tacoma, Washington. The next week is Atlanta. Why would you put Booker T and Buff Bagwell in the main event in Tacoma, Washington, when Atlanta, Georgia is seven days away? So do so you think really was, do you think that was, maybe they wanted it to fail? Sorry to interrupt you, but do you think no. maybe that that they were trying to sabotage it? I believe that me and Booker both thought as soon as as soon as we were told what's going on, me and Booker were had mouths. We had our we had our mouths, our hands over our mouths, talking, and we were saying, "Why are we doing this this week? This can't be good. This cannot be good. This, I mean, this can't." So we knew, and looking back on it. It was over right then. Mm-hmm. We just, you know, you don't want to think it's over in your main event. And you're thinking Atlanta's next week and this this can't be good. But at the same time, we're main events. So how can it be bad? And so I really believe they knew it was over that night. Why else would you put right. the anybody and in, in any kind of first match, 5,000 miles away from your person that you bought the company from, why not do it? Why not do the invasion in their backyard? Right. And also, I, you know, I was blown away and a lot of other people were, too, at the time, because 
you're thinking, regardless of what happened and all that stuff, as you know, there weren't a lot of people, like you said, who got carried over immediately from WCW, right? There were a lot of contracts that people were sitting on and people were getting paid to stay at home and all this stuff, especially really a lot of the big main event guys and things like that. So you had this group of talent. And honestly, like you, Booker T, you mentioned DDP, although I think he came like a couple of months later. You guys were the biggest names of that bunch. So if they were trying to make it work and get off on the good foot with this invasion, which really turned out to be a flop, why let somebody go immediately who's one of the biggest names associated with it? That was like such a big head scratcher because it was already weak enough. Like uh, some of the best guys were... We're at home, so why make it even weaker than it already was? That was really confusing at the time. Oh, confusing to you. I had to raise my hand and ask them if they were firing me. And they replied, no, we are releasing you. And I said, I raised my hand again, and I said, what is the difference? And they had an answer for that, too. And that's when I said, and the answer was, we're not firing you. We're releasing you because if we fire you, we got to redo your contract. We're going to release you, keep you under contract, and then we can bring you back in three months when things cool down. And I knew, like you're hearing and knowing, that that's a line of bullshit. So I started smiling and shaking hands like you do in this business. Mm-hmm. Knowing it was over. Yeah, and then as we all know, the whole thing just kind of fell apart after that. I mean, it seemed like they had this whole big angle planned. It was going to be this big invasion. And almost immediately, it just completely imploded. It really did. It totally imploded. And, you know, and I think they, I was a sacrificial lamb to yeah. getting them the locker room to get along because when you fire a buff Bagwell in his hometown, it rocks, it rocks the boat, bro. Um, so I went down, but I think it helped Vince tremendously. I think everybody was like, man, they just fired buff Bagwell, bro. Y'all better start getting along or mm-hmm. anybody. When you fire buff Bagwell, Anybody's on the block, bro. Anybody's getting a bit chopped. So like a warning shot to keep everybody in line, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Interesting. I mean, it's the only way to make any sense out of it because you would think at that point they would want to have all hands on deck as much as possible. That's right. That's the only thing I could come up with to logically put it in my head of what they did. Nothing else adds up, bro. Main event one week and seven days later in my hometown, they fire me. And like you said, for you, I can't even imagine it. What a jarring thing, because here you go, like you said, 10 years with one company and not just any company, 10 years on national TV, on cable TV for 10 years, reinvention, you know, all these different tag teams, getting to become buff because, you know, that was probably halfway through your run there. And then all of a sudden you're done in a week in the, in, you know, in this new company. It was brutal, man. It was, I mean, it was really brutal 
And I really did know. They told me to call him back in three months, but I really did know it was over. I just, I just still called him back in three months, but Jim Ross answered the phone like, Hey, Mark. I was like, Jim, I'm only calling because y'all told me to. I didn't want to get even more heat by not calling back. Y'all told me to call in three months. I waited three months and two weeks, and you give me a sigh on the phone. Hmm. And that was it, bro. I tried three or four other times to get in with them. I went to a SmackDown in Greenville, South Carolina, bought tickets to sit on the floor. The whole Bilo Center was in line to get my autograph on the floor. And Johnny Ace come out and asked me to come to the back. And I came to the back and um he said he was gonna he said he was gonna bring me, you know, bring me back in, he'll call me on Monday. And that was <laughs> that was 20 years ago, I think. It was basically to get you out of there. Oh pretty much. The whole plan worked what we were gonna do. And but what we didn't plan out was is SmackDown was taped. It wasn't live. So right. all they had to do was hold off on taping to get me out of the, to get me out of the way. Right. And then and then they um they, then they come in the back. I wasn't prepared for them coming out and saying, come in, come in the back and talk to us. I just said I wasn't prepared for that. And so you got no way to no way to win that that answer. If I if I tell them no, then you get heat for not going in the back. And if you tell them, yeah, then your plan don't work because you got out of the way. So I did what I thought was best. And I went to the back. They asked me and they talked to me, whined and dined me and all that. And then never called me back. <laughs> That's really shocking to me. I mean, I shouldn't say it's shocking because that kind of stuff happens in the business all the time, as we know. But mm-hmm. but who would have thought that it would it would come to that? I mean, how do you look back now on your career? Like, how would you best sum it up? Because you go from you know the the ultimate high to then something like that. Like, how do you make sense of it yourself? I I have never made sense of it. I had to make it okay, and it was just extremely a very long 22 year ride and an extremely depressing one. Well, I know, you know, as we said, you have a lot of supporters out there. You have a lot of fans and I'm sure there were, there've been a lot of people and there continue to be a lot of people that are disappointed and, and sorry that, that you had to go through that and that it turned out that way. And mm-hmm. as you, as you know, though, there's a lot of people rooting for you. I mean, we loved, watching you you know seeing that ddp was in your life and and things like that and and people really wanting you uh cheering you on and i hope you understand that i hope you feel that because it's very real oh absolutely i'm so i'm so excited for several reasons everything everything happens for a reason bro everything and i'm again sometimes we can't wrap our head around it but Everything does happen for a reason, and that's how you got to deal with life. And, you know, you can look at the facts and cry the facts all day, but it's gone. It's over. And you, from day one of getting fired or released or whatever they called it, you know, I made the best of it. I had a hell of a career. I went on to the WWA, World Wrestling All-Stars in Australia. I went on to 
um, you know, to doing being the biggest name in the whole indie circuit. Um, so, you know, it was a, it was a great run and I made a great living and it was a great success story that, you know, that unfortunately could have been a much better ending with the WWF's, you know, WWE stamp on me. But I still think that the WWE, there'll be, there'll be a, a door there hopefully one day for the hall of fame or something. So the one thing I've never done is I've never lied and I never told anything bad about the WWE. It's just the truth. I have spoken the truth of what happened. Um, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that story. It's the truth. They didn't, they didn't like something I did and they fired me. I'd like to have known what I'd done because I can promise you at 200 grand or $2 million, you fix it. You fix the problem. So I was never given a problem that I had done to fix. I got fired and then it was told through rumors that it was a bad match and my mother calling. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I heard all those. Yeah. Over my, who gets fired from my mother calling? Yeah. Well, it, it seems like they were they were looking for the reasons to do it. I mean, we there you, go. you know, we have all either been there or known people who have been in a situation like that. If they sure. want you gone, and I don't even just mean wrestling i mean anywhere if they want you gone they will find a way they will manufacture a way if they have to so but but i think all things being equal i i think you handled it well honestly and and like i said there's still so many people pulling for you for people that want to keep up with how you've been doing and and what you're up to these days is there what's the best way for people to keep tabs on on buff bagwell these days it's real easy you go to marcus buffbagwell.com marcusbuffbagwell.com takes you to my website and that takes you to all of my platforms that takes you to my social all my social media stuff my instagram and facebook and my twitter um all my stuff like that you can find but if you go to marcusbuffbagwell.com that'll get you anywhere you want to go that's great and and i'm grateful for you taking a chance to come here and taking the opportunity and the time to talk about what's been going on and and really to try to set the record straight. And I'm, I always appreciate the opportunity to give a platform to guys like you on this show. So thanks. Thanks for coming on and doing it. Oh man. I love it. I love talking about the business and it was um, a blast and just um, anytime you'll do it again in the future. Let's I'd love to do it with you. Just let me know, but I really enjoyed it. All right. Sounds good. All right, buddy. There you have it, folks, my candid conversation with Marcus Buff Bagwell. And I hope that you enjoyed that and were as illuminated by that conversation as I was. I found it very fascinating. And I thank Marcus for agreeing to be a part of this show and be a part of Shut Up and Wrestle. And next week, as I said, on Shut Up and Wrestle, we will have as our guest Mark James the Memphis wrestling historian and really wrestling historian even beyond Memphis, but that's his area of expertise. And he was kind enough in the wake of the passing of Jerry Jarrett, his good friend, to come on Shut Up and Wrestle and talk about Mr. Jarrett and his legacy. He will be here to do that on next week's show. And keep listening to the show because just as we've had some great guests in recent weeks, we will have great guests in the weeks to come. Even after Mark James, future guests on Shut Up and Wrestle will include people like 
Midwestern referee and promoter A.T. Huck, WWF illustrator and artist Tom Fleming behind the creation of some of your favorite WWF characters of the 1990s, as well as Michael Cavaccini, the author of the upcoming book on Impact Wrestling, the history of Impact Wrestling, Phil Schneider of the Way of the Blade podcast and book, as well as the ringer.com will be a guest on the show. Also working on one of my many bosses, Dante Richardson, editor of Inside the Ropes magazine, as well as Bobby Fulton and many other people that I'm working, 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 working my butt off to get on this show to illuminate and elucidate you, the listeners of Shut Up and Wrestle. So please do continue to listen as well. And where can you find the show? Our website is suawpod.com. In addition to other places where you find all your favorite podcasts, wrestling or otherwise, such as Spotify, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. You know the drill. Go there, subscribe, become a follower of this show. Become a follower of the show also on Facebook. We have a Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. I welcome all new members. We are closing in on that thousand follower mark. Please join the group. The more the merrier. It's a great place to be for all of your Shut Up and Wrestle needs. You will find it there. Lots of information and fun. Become a member. Also, if you are interested in some of the other work I do beyond this podcast, my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, is available in print, digital, and audio form on Amazon.com, as well as Barnes & Noble and many other fine outlets. The Wrestling News, your daily wrestling newscast every morning the best way to start your day with all of the happenings in the world of wrestling you can find it at the wrestlingnews.com the magazines that i write for i mentioned at the top of the show pro wrestling illustrated pwi-online.com as well as inside the ropes magazine that's inside the ropes magazine.com and if you happen to be looking for me on social media you will find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. And in addition to that, on Facebook, you will find my author page, my author Facebook page, Brian Solomon Writer. And on any one of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author web page on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that it's easy to grin when your ship comes in and you've got the stock market beat. But the man worthwhile is the man who can smile when his shorts are too tight in the seat. So long, wrestling fans. Thank you,